Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Haley, we are going to have our featured guests on the show today. Tell us a little bit about uh, two of the people that you've been speaking to recently here. Yeah, we've been on our radio show covering the BC Liberal leadership race. We last week featured interviews with Diane Watts and Sam Sullivan. This week, we're going to feature two interviews with the next two candidates in this race, starting, I think, with Mike D. Young. He has held many hats in politics. He's been an MLA for Abbotsford West for 24 years and counting. Most recently, finance minister under the previous Liberal government. He joined our radio show to speak with me and co-host Kirk LaPointe all about his candidacy. He ran in the previous Liberal leadership race, too. So we asked him a question about what would be different under his leadership. It's a good interview. Hopefully listeners will get a lot out of it and and meet a different side to these candidates who've been in politics for a long time, but are now trying to branch out and actually lead the party in a different direction. Welcome to the program. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We're the daily business program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Haley Wooden. We are continuing our coverage of the BC Liberal leadership race. Our next guest is Mike DeYoung. He has represented the Abbotsford West riding as an MLA since 1994. Over the course of his career in politics, he has served as the Minister of Finance, Health, Aboriginal Relations and Reconciliation, Labor and Forests, as well as as Attorney General. He joins us today to discuss his candidacy. Mike, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Great to be on Roundhouse. Tell us a little bit why you've decided to run and what you believe you're going to bring to the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. You've pointed out uh, a fairly extensive record of service, uh, both with the BC Liberal Party under two premiers, uh, senior cabinet portfolios, but there is a difference, right, between uh, uh, serving in the cabinet and chairing the cabinet as leader, and it's an opportunity to uh, impart a, uh, a, a vision, both for the party and for the uh, the province. That's what's exciting me about uh, this exercise of selecting a new captain. You know, we're in opposition. Uh, we should take advantage uh, of that. We were a good government. And uh, I was proud and am proud of the service I rendered uh, to that do- that government. Our, our record of achievement uh, in partnership with British Columbians, leading the country in, in every category that uh, people look at, whether it's job creation uh, for families, uh, consumer confidence, uh, our economic growth. I mean, these are all very, very positive indicators of how we did collectively as a province. But I have some different ideas about how to deploy the benefits uh, of that strong economy, and that's uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to get into the race. Was one of the uh, reasons that the party lost the election, Mike, the fact that it, it didn't find ways to uh, to basically redistribute some of those tidings that had come from the strong economy? Possibly. I think when you're analyzing a, an election result, it's it's dangerous to try and point to uh, to one. Uh, single thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We were a good government. We we weren't a perfect government, that's for sure. Um, and that's uh, in part why we find ourselves uh, in opposition uh, today. You know, we increased uh, as the economy grew, uh, we increased spending uh, dramatically. That's particularly true uh, in the last year. But we were also mindful of the fact that we had borrowed billions of dollars during the recession. And you know, I was always taught when you borrow money, you pay it back. That may a little old-fashioned to, to some people, but governments that don't do that uh, 
ultimately find themselves in uh, great difficulty and and there's the societies they govern in great difficulty. The fact that we had the healthiest balance sheets in Canada provide us as a society now with a, a, a range of options and uh, choices that no other society enjoys. That's a good position to be in. And uh, uh, part of this uh, race, I think, is about exploring how we as a party and how I as a leader would uh, deploy the benefits of that economic strength for families, for people. Even your successor, I think, uh, Carol James, has indicated that the economy is quite strong, that the the management of the government books uh, appears to be quite tidy um, in all of this. Do you think that the Liberals can find their way back to government, though, in their next election, if uh, if there's not a, a really clear faltering on the part of the NDP? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I never take anything for granted. We have to re-earn the right uh, to govern. It's not going to uh, uh, fall automatically to us. We have to re-earn uh, the, the trust and support of the British Columbians, and there's no magical way to do that. You do it by going from corner to corner to corner to corner and, and talking with people. But it's interesting what you said about um, Minister, uh, Minister James, because here's where I think the faltering has already begun. Um, to her credit, she has acknowledged inheriting uh, a, a fiscal situation that is the envy of the country, maybe North America. That is the product of a careful balancing act that um, emphasizes the importance of the private sector, competitive tax rates, So in a year when the government uh, found itself in possession of dramatically more revenue than anyone anticipated, what was the answer from the present government? To raise taxes. Now someone, someone explained that to me. In a year when the government has more of your money than it expected, significantly more, the answer is to reach into people's pockets and take more. Well, we know where that goes. Um, you know, whether it's income taxes going up, whether it's carbon taxes going up, um, the the very formula for generating that success is now being dismantled. Never mind the fact that the uh, the NDP government is um, seemingly on a weekly basis canceling uh, uh, projects or threatening to cancel projects. I mean scandalous that we are even having a conversation about writing off four billion dollars instead of advancing a project that will guarantee this province and future generations clean green sustainable electricity i mean that's so you you pose the question about is the government faltering Uh, i think we're seeing evidence of that already now, uh, along with some changes, and you mentioned taxes, the NDP has also proposed and promised billions of dollars in new spending. So I'm curious if, as you put it, the Liberal Party is able to regain the trust of voters, and if your leader and next Premier of British Columbia, what do you think British Columbians should expect by way of a course correction or with all these promises committed and billions of dollars of new spending on infrastructure? Maybe, uh, Haley, I sort of interpret that as the, if I may, as the the why question for Mike DeYoung. Like, if, if you uh, are actually successful, uh, become the leader of the BC Liberal Party and ultimately the uh, uh, the Premier, why? Why and what? Why would uh, this be uh, different? Uh, different? And the em- the emphasis I have tried to bring to this is uh, is education. Uh, whether it is expanding early uh, learning with significant uh, investments to allow children to get into kindergarten earlier 
to expand a program that we started that I uh, we started while I was uh, the finance minister, where every child gets a uh, an RESP at age six for twelve hundred dollars. Um, imagine imagine the result if each year after that uh, we top that up with an additional five hundred dollars. Every young person in British Columbia would graduate from high school with between ten and fifteen thousand dollars in an RESP and no young person that are in, unable to pursue their dreams for vocational training or education because of a lack of resources. I mean, those are the kinds of changes that we can make that we have as a society, I believe, uh, the wealth to, uh, to create. It is the single most important tool. And when people talk about poverty, it is the only way to break the cycle of poverty that, that some children are born into sometimes generationally. Education is the, the answer to uh, breaking that cycle of poverty and giving individuals the tools to make better decisions for themselves. Mike DeYoung is our guest. He's, of course, a BC Liberal Party leadership candidate. He's the MLA for Abbotsford West, a long track record of, uh, of cabinet roles uh, in this province. Um, no question that uh, the alliance between the NDP and Green uh, Party seems predicated in a lot of ways on getting to the finish line for proportional representation in this province. Um, are you in any way a supporter of a system that has uh, so-called PR? Uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, if it does happen, it will plunge this province into decades of instability and uncertainty. You know, it, it, the slogans all sound uh, nice, but when you see uh, how this operates uh, practically, when you see how it takes uh, decision making and moves it behind closed doors where party bosses now uh, determine what the arrangements are going to be. When you see um, the amount of time it takes in countries with this to actually uh, uh, carve out uh, a governing uh, arrangement. And when you see what it means for local representation. And, and by the way, this is ultimately why I believe it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. Remember, we did this twice before. And, and I hope uh, listeners understand that we, uh, in, in 2005 and 2009, British Columbians were asked, as a result of a nonpartisan exercise, a citizens' assembly, citizens' forum, that came up with uh, the option, they were asked and uh, they rejected it narrowly in uh, 2005. In 2009, they rejected it overwhelmingly because they saw the map and they saw that they would no longer have the local representation. And for the NDP to provide a straightforward question to British Columbians, uh, the Premier said that before the election, to now uh, be changing to offer a convoluted, uh, multi-choice, uh, the, the fix is in, they're trying to manipulate a certain result, and quite frankly, I know why they're doing it. It is the only basis upon which they believe they can uh, maintain themselves in power. And, uh, you know, these decisions, the threshold has been reduced. I don't know if you noticed the NDP uh, convention. When they were talking about major policy uh, changes for their party, they insisted on a 60% uh, uh, threshold. Um, this apparently uh, something as basic as our democratic right to elect uh, people can be decided on the basis of 50%. It's, there's no geographic considerations. I don't think people across this province are going to take too uh, kindly to the fact that a, a very small geographic region of the province 
uh, will determine uh, the outcome or could determine the outcome of this. But even in major population centers, uh, I think when people learn more about what is being proposed, uh, they are going to uh, reject it uh, handily. Okay. Mike, what do you think the Liberal Party needs to do to regain support in lower mainland ridings that voted NDP in the last election or have been voting NDP for some time? Uh, some pretty significant uh, issues. I, I don't think anyone should uh, uh, should dismiss the, uh, and I don't think anyone has the significance of uh, housing and housing-related issues. But I will say this, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe this will, will surprise people. I hope it doesn't because I've been saying it for some time. People talk about housing affordability, and that is uh, key and, and crucial. But before uh, before housing can be affordable, it's got to be available. It'll never be affordable if it isn't available. You know, even in the last few days, we have heard people talking about, you know, the, the province had promised uh, over 100,000 new units of housing, and now we have the federal announcement. Here's another number for you. 120,000. That is the number of housing units awaiting a decision from local and regional governments in Metro Vancouver. 120,000. Look, I, I think there is a role for government to uh, uh, address uh, supportive housing, uh, work in partnership uh, uh, with folks in emergency shelter housing. But the, the, the great, uh, the, the, the middle, the pressure that the middle class is facing to secure housing is a product of demand far outstripping supply. And of those 120,000 units of housing, some have been awaiting a decision for five or six years. That's crazy. So that's why I proposed actually two things. Uh, one would be to provide communities, uh, local governments, regional governments with uh, some more resources to hire more planning staff, to train more planning staff, because some of them are under the gun. But I would also legislate. I would legislate timelines. Governments are great at putting deadlines on other people. They rarely like to put deadlines on themselves. I think 10 months is ample time to get a decision on a uh, 50 or 60 unit uh, housing development. Because for every day, for every week, for every month going beyond that, that's a home that a family is being denied. And if we start to think of it in those terms, maybe we can sort of collectively, uh, governments can get off their can and start to move more quickly to address the real issue here, which is the fact that every time a for sale sign goes up, 10 or 20 families show up and bid the, bid the value of the house up or, mm -hmm. the, or the value of the, the home up. That's what we have to address with some urgency in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, it's been a good opportunity to have you on the program. Thank you very much for joining us. Haley and Kirk, always a pleasure. Great to be on Roundhouse. That's Mike DeYoung, BC Liberal Party leadership candidate and current MLA for Abbotsford West. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. Stay with us. That was BC Liberal leadership candidate Mike DeYoung, former finance minister, current MLA for Abbotsford West. Now, why don't we take a little bit of a break and we'll come back with the next guest. I, I'm going to tease it, uh, Todd Stone, another BC Liberal leadership mm -hmm. candidate. But this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott 
accountants and business advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600 or else check them out on their website at manningelliot.ca. So Haley, I, I kind of teased it yep. ahead, but uh, tell us how did the Todd Stone interview uh, go? It went really well. Todd Stone, current MLA for Kamloops South Thompson, previously the Minister of Transportation. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to talk to him about. He was the minister responsible for ICBC. So we talk about that. We talk about housing and transportation issues in the lower mainland. A lot of really topical issues were discussed. Have a listen now to the interview. Welcome back to the program. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We're the daily business program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Our next guest is vying to become the new leader of the BC Liberal Party. Todd Stone is into his second term as MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. He is the former Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Minister Responsible for Emergency Management BC. He is now BC's critic for municipal affairs. BIV is hosting all BC Liberal leadership candidates on the show this week and next to discuss each candidate's views on a wide range of topics. And we have Todd Stone in studio with us today. Thanks for coming on the program. It is great to be here. Tell us a little bit why you decided to run and what you think you're going to bring to the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. Well, uh, I am uh, blessed with three young daughters. And so everything that I do in, in, in life is uh, looking through the lens of, of my three little girls. And, and I think the children of British Columbia generally. Uh, I want the limits on my daughters to, to only be the limits of their imagination. I want them to be able to embrace every opportunity uh, that lays ahead of them. Uh, we live in, in an incredible province with tremendous wealth. And, uh, and yet so much of what government does uh, can affect positively or negatively uh, our the ability of our children to uh, to really be able to embrace those opportunities in the years ahead. So uh, I decided to throw myself into this race because after three months of uh, of watching this new government uh, dismantle the strong economic foundation that we had built up brick by brick by brick already uh, already and in yeah. three months now we're into f- the fourth month now yeah. uh, you know it was uh, I, I, f- I felt and my wife uh, you know fully supporting uh, supporting me in this uh, we we felt that we needed to get off the sidelines and uh, try and do something about it. Uh, and so it's been an incredible journey thus far. So the former premier, Christy Clark, made no um, illusions about this. She really liked the job that you were doing. Uh, she was a big fan, big supporter. Uh, it was very clear. Um, how much do you feel that you need to extend what she was doing? And what distance do you have to put from some of it, do you think, Todd? Well, in my mind, governments are responsible for two things at a high level. Uh, one is to create the conditions within which uh, you're going to have a thriving, growing, diverse economy where people are working, where you're able to you know, balance budgets and create opportunity for your citizens. Uh, I think on that score, uh, our former government gets a very high mark. I think most British Columbians acknowledge that we're good economic managers. But the other side of the equation is uh, government has a role and a responsibility, an important responsibility to make sure that we're investing in the services that people need and that people feel like they're actually benefiting from that strong economy. Right. And I think on that side of uh, the uh, the coin, I think there's room for improvement. I think we missed the mark in a few areas. What are the types of services you think that, well, uh, that a government you know, the, the, ought to be moving itself more toward or doing more about? The, the best way to describe this is my sister is a teacher in Burnaby, and, and she's got uh, a number of girlfriends. Uh, they, um, they're they all, all married. They all have kids. Uh, 
they uh, they all voted BC Liberal in 2013. Uh, only my sister voted BC Liberal in 2017. The others, uh, well, at least she got her vote. That I, at least I got yeah, her yeah, vote. Yeah, well, at least that's right. what she tells me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, I, it's a, it is a secret. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, when I asked, well, why? She said the strong economy jobs message didn't resonate in the Lower Mainland. Mm. Why? Because people are working. People have jobs, but mm. people weren't feeling like they were getting ahead. They're not feeling like they're uh, they're they're getting ahead and sharing in in you know benefits of this so-called strong economy. Right. And so uh, connecting those those dots between the the ability to invest in services and actually investing in the services, I think, is is an area where we need to improve. As so, was that a mistake forward. or a complacency? Uh, what, what happened there? Do you think? Well, I, I think it's certainly what I've heard is I, I just, just finished a 6,000-kilometer tour of British Columbia over the last five days, and the message, whether we were in Fort St. John, Kelowna, or here in Vancouver, was very similar. Uh, people mm. want to know. Uh, they want the economy to be strong. They want there to be jobs, obviously, but they want to know that if they need to access a childcare space, they don't have to drive 45 minutes each way to access an affordable right. space. They want right. to know uh, that if they have to look after um, their their elderly parent who's got early on, onset Alzheimer's, that the supports are going to be there in the healthcare system for their mother. Uh, they want to know that uh, that they that the government understands the challenges with housing affordability and is and is willing and, and able to put some some initiatives on the table to to help address that. So, uh, I, uh, I I'm I'm excited because we we have positioned our campaign as a new generation of leadership. We're we're the ideas uh, campaign in this race. Uh, we've put some very thoughtful uh, and in some cases some bold ideas on the table uh, around housing, around mm-hmm. the environment today, uh, and uh, investments in seniors. And education and so forth, uh, but none of that is possible if you don't have that strong, vibrant, growing economy. Uh, so we don't take our, our focus off that. Let's just make sure that everyone feels that they're actually benefiting uh, from uh, the hard work uh, that flows from a strong economy. Okay. On the the housing front, you've proposed a hundred million dollar fund to speed up the development application process, clear out backlog, help incentivize municipalities. To what type of relationship would you like to see the provincial government have with municipalities when it comes to housing? Well, one of the lessons that I take from my time uh, as part of the former government the last four and a half years, uh, not just in transportation, but but abroad, broadly across a number of different files, is we have to bring our elbows down. I, I think we're we're going to get a lot more done when we work in partnership with mm-hmm. the mayors of the region, with communities. And so, uh, you know, our housing plan, one of the components, as you mentioned, is is uh, the creation of a $100 million fund to work with local governments, to support local governments in helping uh, reduce the backlog of building applications. Yeah. Now, this is not about pointing the finger. This isn't about saying- No, but I think it's about 90 weeks on average in well, the city, it, somewhere around that yes, to get permits it's, uh, that you need. It, it's, it's depending on which community you're in, you can yeah. be waiting upwards of two, in some cases, three years. Yeah. Uh, now, there's 120,000 units of, uh, of housing which have been proposed Pose, which are sitting uh, presumably on building uh, inspectors' desks and, and building permit offices uh, across the lower mainland. Uh, let's work together and figure out uh, how we can accelerate the approval of, uh, of those permits to bring that stock, uh, that supply uh, online. That's going to, that, that addressing the challenge on the supply side. Uh, has far greater upside potential in actually helping uh, address the challenges of affordability than almost anything else we could throw at this. So let's work on that together. What about on the topic of transportation when it comes to working with municipalities and really the lower mainland region? How would you propose going about that differently than say what's happened in the past? Well, uh, let me deal with the elephant in the room. I mean, uh, I, I presided over a referendum uh, requirement uh, that was a mandate uh, that I had from the former in 
part as part of the former government. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, I think we've listened. I have certainly, I certainly understand the uh, the reasons why that didn't work. And uh, moving forward, uh, certainly uh, when I'm the leader and when I'm the premier, uh, you know, we will not make major infrastructure decisions in this province based on referendum. Number one. Number two, I am proud of the fact that as the minister of transportation under my leadership, uh, British Columbia was the first province to sign a bilateral agreement with the federal government for transit funding. So the billions of dollars which is going to flow into uh, British Columbia for the Broadway line in Vancouver for the much needed rapid transit projects in Surrey, uh, th- those are those projects are going to happen and the funding is there largely because of the work that uh, that we did over the last number of years. What I wonder about though is given that that last uh, plebiscite the referendum was more of a plebiscite or referendum about the governance of TransLink. Well, let's face it, TransLink was being dragged all around and, and everybody could say that, that for some reason the vote was not really about the 0.5% uh, tax increase. It was really about the administration of TransLink. Given that TransLink now has different leadership, different, essentially different people at the top who appear to be doing a different kind of job, why not go back with another plebiscite? Well, I, I look, I, I, the, the one good thing I think that did come out of the the, uh, the referendum process was it did galvanize uh, the region. It did galvanize the mayors uh, to actually pull together uh, what I think is a very thoughtful plan. It's still, in fact, the plan has stood the way, uh, withstood the test of time. It's mm-hmm. the plan that they're now executing on. We we together worked on on implementing phase one. We came to the table with hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of additional investment to, to help make phase one happen. Mm-hmm. Those improvements are now being felt by users across the region. Um, the second phase were, you know, are the big projects, which yes. we're working on now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, that uh, working with the, with the mayors um, uh, on, on these priorities and ensuring that, um, that we're, we're being fair and reasonable and equitable across the region around uh, how to pay for this infrastructure, I think that's what really matters. Do you have a particular vision about what you think the mobility pricing regime ought to look like? In broad outline, anyway. I, I, let me say uh, t- two things quickly. One, uh, I think mobility pricing uh, of some sort is is how we're going to we're, we're going to have to pay for all the infrastructure. That's mm-hmm. the only way we're going to be able to pay for infrastructure in the years ahead. Uh, we have a million more people coming into this region in the next twenty years. Uh, you can't build a bridge without paying for it. The key, I think, and the, the underlying principles need to be. Uh, let's make sure that that the financial levers that are adopted, whether that be um, uh, you know some form of distance-based pricing or whatever else is being considered, uh, let's make sure that it's fair and reasonable for for everyone in the Lower Mainland. I think there was a legitimate beef for folks south of the Fraser. Yeah, that the, you know the major crossings uh, that were being built were were told and 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 unfairly punished folks who lived south of the Fraser. Yeah, but the danger is that you're going to almost offset the purpose of people moving to these communities in order to save some money on their housing by taxing them to frankly come back into the city to work. Uh, and that that's a fair comment. And yeah. and I, I would also say that uh, you know removing removing the tolls um, you know is not a uh, a sustainable uh, solution in terms of actually moving people. Yeah, we, you can't uh, think the, that that's going to last forever. The Portman anyway. Bridge yeah. is now a parking lot. Yeah. Uh, it takes an hour to get from Langley into downtown Vancouver now, whereas that was half an hour before. Right? Yeah. Accidents are up 19%. Uh, volumes are up almost 30% on the, on the port, man. They're actually up on all the crossings. Uh, interestingly enough, it, it appears that ridership at TransLink is, has flattened a bit and, and mm-hmm. might have even dipped a little bit since the tolls came off the bridge. So it's had a bit of a perverse effect with respect to the goal of getting people out of cars and into into viable transit mm-hmm. options. So bottom line is uh, the, the mobility commission, which the, uh, the mayor's council have struck, uh, I think is the right approach. Uh, they've put the this this issue into the hands of experts to scour the earth and develop a, a essentially a set of best practices as to a, you know, here 
here are all the different types of options that could be pursued in terms of how we finance uh, these projects, the billions of dollars of infrastructure that have to be built in the years ahead. Uh, let's just make sure that whatever uh, we decide, whatever levers we choose, that it's fair and equitable for everyone across the region. We're speaking to Todd Stone. He's MLA for Kamloops South Thompson and a candidate in the BC Liberal Party leadership race. Now, part of the transportation piece for many consumers and commuters would be ICBC hmm. insurance rates. You oversaw the Crown Corporation for more than four years as minister. Would you approach some of the challenges facing ICBC differently as leader of the Liberal Party and as Premier? Uh, ICBC has some very, very significant headwinds uh, that it's facing today. Uh, the, the structural financial challenges at ICBC are significant. And, 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 and the reason why is, is very obvious. Uh, uh, people are crashing more. Uh, crash crashes in British Columbia are up 23% in the last couple of years. Uh, injury uh, claims costs are up 16%. Vehicle uh, damage uh, costs are up 15%. So it's not just a unique problem to British Columbia. Uh, crashes are up and the costs of repairs are up right across North America. And it's putting a lot of pressure on auto insurers generally. We embarked on a plan uh, four years ago to uh, to do everything that we possibly could to reduce the pressure uh, on ICBC's costs and therefore rates for drivers. And so, uh, uh, you know, uh, we we transferred one and a half billion from the ex- uh, optional side to the uh, to the optional side during that time. We uh, we we reduced management by five hundred positions. We cut executive compensation in half. We we implemented a, a new windshield repair program, a, a, a fraud analytics uh, program that's going to save forty four million dollars per year. And a new IT system that will save ninety dollars, uh, ninety million dollars per year. So and yeah, uh, and, and tougher and distracted yet. driving penalties yeah. and, on, and a whole bunch of other things yeah. that I, I haven't mentioned. And yet the pressures are, are unrelenting uh, right. on the on the the corporation's bottom line. So the last thing that uh, that that we did before the, the the recent election was we commissioned an independent third party study, the first of its kind at ICBC, that looked at soup to nuts the whole corporation. Uh, what else can be done? What are the viable solutions moving forward? That that could reduce cost pressure and reduce the pressure on rates. That report was sitting on my desk right after the last election because I was sworn in again as the minister for a brief period of time before the transfer of power. Presumably, the report was sitting right in the middle of David Eby's desk when he was sworn in as the minister responsible for ICBC. Instead of embracing that report and and the options and solutions that were identified in it um, and begin to start implementing uh, what is suggested, uh, the NDP is sticking their head in the sand. They are, are launching another review to review the review Views, I guess, and uh, and and all the while, motorists are going to face an eight percent rate hike, uh, combined rate hike for the forthcoming yeah. year. They've said uh, no fault insurance is just not on the table. Uh, should it be? Uh, I, you know, I'm not a fan of no fault. Uh, I do think, though, that there are some uh, there are some areas of product reform that are worthy of exploring. I think there are, there's more that can be done uh, with product to ensure that the good drivers pay less and the bad drivers pay more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were beginning to head down that uh, that path, and there's a number of steps uh, that are detailed in this third party report that would uh, would help with that. I think we we need to dramatically increase the penalties on uh, for distracted driving. Uh, People are still not getting the message uh, that this is a dangerous driving behavior. I think we need to do more with red light uh, intersection cameras. We should have them at more locations, and and they should be on twenty four seven. Most of these crashes uh, that we we speak about uh, are taking place in highly um, congested 
uh, urban centers at intersections. Yeah. And so whatever we can do to, and work again, working with our munis- uh, municipal partners at intersection improvements, road safety improvements, and perhaps a, a, a much more robust red light camera program, uh, I think that will go a long ways as well. But we're going to have to come back to product reform and look for ways to really dial back the costs. Mm. Uh, and that's how we're going to save, uh, uh, save, save, save drivers uh, from having to pay much higher rates in the future. I want to pivot quickly to the environment. Your campaign issued a release recently talking about the need for BC to reclaim its title as an environment and climate leader. Do you think it's lost its title? Uh, Well, you know, I hear from a lot of British Columbians who say uh, they're really proud of the fact that British Columbia was the first jurisdiction actually in the world to put a price on carbon, um, certainly in North America. We, and, and we, you know, our, we've received uh, accolades from the United Nations and the World Bank and others for demonstrating that you can actually put a price on carbon and grow your economy at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's unfortunate that the NDP have decided that the car- carbon tax will, will no longer be revenue neutral. I also think that uh, there, there's... Uh, there's more that needs to be done to accommodate or account for energy-intensive trade-exposed industries, uh, which are still a big driver of our provincial economy. Going forward, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm okay with the and and I support the uh, British Columbia's um, commitments within the Pan-Canadian uh, framework on, on climate leadership, uh, the agreement that was signed with all other provinces and the federal government that will provide for uh, modest increases in the carbon tax over time. I would like to see a portion of that incremental increase actually directly allocated to to transit projects. I think there's uh, that's an idea mm-hmm. that has been espoused by some yeah. municipal leaders. I think there's some merit there, um, but beyond the the you know the carbon tax issue, uh, fundamentally, we need to make sure that that we have a detailed made in BC plan to actually reduce emissions in this province. And so that's part of what we we have included in our plan. Uh, we also have some specific measures uh, with respect to uh, ocean protection and, and um, uh, looking after wildlife uh, stocks, which are dwindling in parts of the province, uh, uh, and a number of other initiatives. So I'm very, I'm very proud of this. I call it reclaiming our leadership uh, position. Uh, Last question on this. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister, as part of his overall context of, of trying to get a pan-Canadian climate change plan together, had to make some commitments to the province of Alberta. One of them had to be that, that the Kinder Morgan pipeline was going to get built, as it was a commitment to British Columbia. Do you think the pipeline now is in greater danger than it was when you left government? Well, uh, the, the pipeline uh, was approved by by Prime Minister Trudeau, his government, and the you know the National Energy Board, and and it, it, you know it's federal jurisdiction. Uh, we we recognizing that early on, we developed our five conditions and wanting to make sure that we got the best possible deal for British Columbia. I'm satisfied that we that we did. Uh, I, I don't believe legally. Uh, when you look at all the attempts in the courts uh, to derail this project uh, or to stop it uh, that have failed, I don't believe there are any more legal levers available if, if the current government of British Columbia feels that um, it's worth uh, taxpayers' time and money to be trying uh, further legal maneuvers. I think they're going to fail and it's a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, but where this project is potentially in jeopardy is is if, if the proponent decides that they've had enough mm-hmm. with the delays – uh, they may just pack up and, and decide to go elsewhere. And, and I don't think that's good for, uh, for investment, investor confidence in British Columbia. And, you know, we don't want to be known as a jurisdiction around the world where you can't get anything done. Uh, it was only a couple of months ago when uh, Patronus uh, LNG made their decision not to proceed with a $36 billion LNG investment in Prince Rupert. And we had champagne bottles being uncorked in Victoria with the NDP and the Greens. We're, we're delirious. 
this was a private sector investment of, of close to $40 billion. Uh, we're quickly developing a reputation around the world for, for not being friendly uh, to investment. And I tell you, this investment is portable. It, it will go, um, if it's not here in British Columbia, it'll go somewhere else where uh, the conditions are more, uh, more conducive to welcoming that investment and creating jobs elsewhere. Todd, we appreciate you joining us in studio. Thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll do it again soon. That's Todd Stone, MLA for Kamloops South Thompson and a BC Liberal Party leadership candidate. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll be back in a moment. That was BC Liberal leadership candidate Todd Stone, MLA for Kamloops South Thompson, former Minister of Transportation. I've been enjoying these interviews. Uh, it's interesting because it, unlike the election we had, these are all people who have some aligned values. They're vying to be the leader of the same party, but they're also trying to distinguish themselves too in what they represent. Yeah, because eventually they're all going to be working with each other either that way. Too. So <laughs> you, you wonder how much the gloves are really going to come off, but it's fascinating. They all believe that they can uh, lead the party in the best way. And I don't know, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how this shakes out. I've enjoyed watching some of the debates, too, where they're encouraged to ask questions of each other. Diane Watts in a bit of a different position. She hasn't been in provincial politics. But among the others, they have been colleagues. So when they call someone out on something, sometimes the responses are to the effect of, well, as you'll recall, as you are sitting at the cabinet Uh, table with me, it's kind of funny. Anyway. (laughs) Well, excellent. I want to thank you all for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accounts and Business Advisors. Haley, if somebody wants to find you online, what's the best way to do that? Head over to BIV.com for other radio show clips, podcasts, news, etc. And if you want to connect with me, head on over to Twitter. My handle is at Haley Wooden. And you can find me at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the Business in Vancouver podcast.